several weeks since I preached, um, so I'm out of the habit, I feel like, but let me, let me thank Cody and Kevin very explicitly for their gracious, uh, graciousness of giving me a breather. They, they've taken up my slack, and um, I, I really do appreciate it. I don't take it for granted, brothers. Um, I've been traveling a lot for work, and then in December, it ended up that my dad was in the hospital for about three weeks, which... Of course, we didn't know that was coming, so that wasn't part of the plan. But, but the fact that I wasn't preaching allowed me to be in the hospital with him on a couple of Sunday mornings when he would have been alone otherwise. And um, so that was a, actually a really sweet time. And um, I appreciate that that, that was possible. Um, let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your church that you're building. Uh, we thank you, Father, for this this book of Acts that describes how you started your church, how you, how you founded it and built it on, on the faithfulness of people, on the gospel of your son Jesus. And Father, I pray that as we look into your word today, that, that our hearts will be touched, that we'll be moved and we'll be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So as most of you know, Blackman Baptist is a Southern Baptist church. And uh, now that means some important things doctrinally. But I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, there are many other churches that, that share a lot of our doctrines in common with us. But, but one key distinction about Southern Baptists is our cooperative program for missions. Um, and so if you, you may know this, many of you do know this, I know. But those, those of you who don't, one distinctive thing about the Southern Baptist co uh, Convention is that there, there are these multiple organizations that are, that are sort of around that convention. One of them is called the IMB, the International Mission Board. And what that does is kind of a unique thing. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention is an independent group of churches who voluntarily coordinate on missions. And there's not a hierarchy like in some church structures. Uh, the, each of these churches, including ours, is independent. And we... We are not under any uh, specific authority from the SBC, but we participate with the SBC and we support the IMB. Now, that's not a commercial for SBC. It actually ties into the sermon this morning. We're talking about Acts 13 and 14. We're talking about how God chose to use missionaries as his method of sending his, of his word out. Um, so I wanted to kind of just tell you a few things about the IMB, just a few brief stats. Um, there are actually 42,000 churches that are, that are supported by, by the missionaries of the IMB globally. Um, that touches about 780,000 people that are members of those churches. Um, we had in 2015, which is, which is the year that I could find stats for, 93,000 baptisms overseas. 6,000 new churches planted. Um, and it, when we look at, at how, how the IMB is engaging with the people groups of the world, there are about 872 people groups that are currently being touched by the IMB and about 3,200 more that are yet unreached, not engaged. To do this work, there are about 3,500 missionaries, foreign missionaries, 
in the field overseas, supported by the IMD, supported by us, because we're doing this. Um, and that's not to that's not to brag, but but it is to um, to encourage and and to to hopefully share a little bit that that this whole mission thing that we're going to talk about in the sermon today is something we take very seriously. It's part of it's a part of who we are and what we what we do. Um, it is an indication of faith in Jesus and faithfulness to his great commission, his command to us to share the gospel. And so um, I kind of wanted to start with that as just to, to lay a little bit of a, a context. Now, uh, today's message is from Acts 13 and 14, but actually in our series, we're going to have another opportunity later in the year to dig into the, the text and the narrative of the, of the story of what happened. So what I'm hoping to do today is a little bit broader stroke and set, set a context of, of what, how do, how do the, the concept of missionaries even fit into God's overall plan in his plan of redemption? So that's, that's what I hope to do today. Um, our focal passage is from Acts 13. I, I chose a few verses. I kind of selected them out, and it's not contiguous. I'm going to read them. It's from Acts 13, the first three verses, and then also verses 26 through 33 later in the chapter. First three verses tell us, now there were in... in in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So this, and I'm skipping several verses here, but, but basically Paul begins, uh, he, they go to their first city and he begins preaching. And he, he begins by saying, brothers, he's in a synagogue speaking to Jews and some God-fearing Gentiles who are there. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of his salvation. God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And it goes on, but I wanted to highlight, highlight that, that. That Paul that Paul and Barnabas were called directly by the Spirit to go, and when he went, the message that he preached was foundational. He started at the beginning and he told the story, and then he said, but I... I am bringing you good news that what God promised to the fathers has been fulfilled. And so what I want to kind of walk through today and outline would be sort of three, three pieces. If we look at the scope of time since Abraham, the calling of Abraham by God, that's about 4,000 years ago. So if we put Jesus right in the middle, it's about 2,000 years before Jesus back to Abraham. And it's about 2,000 years from Jesus to us today. And so Jesus kind of sits, from our perspective, kind of sits right in the middle between us and Abraham. And um, so we have, if we, if we look at it, we see 2,000 years, a phase of, I'm going to call it preparation. A 2,000 year phase of preparation. It's not really a missionary phase. And then we see this brief but radical change in God's plan and God's work because Jesus came and did the work that he came to do and it shifted what happens after because 
We go from 2,000 years of preparation to Jesus' work to 2,000 years of proclamation. 2,000 years of us telling the story of what has been done. So I just kind of want to walk through that, but I wanted to lay the groundwork. That's where I'm headed. So in the Old Testament, we see Israel's mission was mostly an internal mission, actually. And, and what was it? Well, he, he promised them, he called them out, and he said, you'll be a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, right? Holy and set apart. And so, but why? Why? Just because he liked them? Well, he did like them. He loved them. But, it, but he had a, a broader purpose, a greater purpose. That they would be the vehicle through which the Messiah would come. That was the purpose. The Gentile nations, and this is kind of hard for us to look at, but the Gentile nations, for those thousands of years, were pretty much left to their own devices. And Paul admits that in this chapter. We're going to actually look at that text for a second. And that's hard to see. God engaged the Israelites. He didn't engage the Gentiles. Um, but we see um, Israel's, Israel's relationships with those Gentile nations and those Gentile, pe uh, Gentile peoples were sometimes peaceable. There were sometimes open conflict. But they weren't really ever a missionary type of, a type of relationship. Um, either, they were, either they were at peace or they were at war or they were trying to avoid each other, but there really was never this, uh, except for one example I can think of, uh, any kind of a missionary kind of situation. They tended, they tended more to struggle with the opposite, trying to keep the outside influence out rather than influencing from within out, outward. And, and so God had chosen these people for what? To bring the Messiah into the world. And how did God do it? And this is so important to think about. I think... <clears throat> We can misunderstand what Israel is all about, and I'm not actually not going to try to proclaim that I know what Israel is all about, because I don't think it, God's really done with Israel yet. Um, but I think that the, the major thing, the major promise, had, he has used Israel to bring the Messiah into the world, and that was the promise. But what did he do? How did he do it? Well, he made a nation from one family. That was the starting point. So he set aside Jacob who then later, he changed his name to Israel, wrestles with God, because Jacob wrestled with God in the wilderness, in the, in the desert. And, and now he, he's given this name of Israel to the whole nation of people. But how did, these, how did Jacob's family become a nation? Well, he provided a place for the family to grow, and he provided the opportunity for them to, to move into Egypt. And where did, they, where did they fall into Egypt, into the most fertile place? the best place, the best land. And how did God arrange that? By his providence, he set it up so that these sheep herders from Canaan were not welcomed with the Egyptians. They were, they were considered like kind of dirty. And the Egyptians didn't want any part of them. So they, they put them off to the side. But because of Joseph's position in Egypt, where did they get put? In the best land for their sheep. And so they grew and God blessed them. And then he delivered them from Egypt. And I think it's fascinating. We use this word. He delivered them from Egypt. It's the same word we use when a baby is born. The baby is delivered. And the, and the analogy is strong here because you see the small group of people go into Egypt and this nation come out. And when they come out, what did he do? He, he gave them a leader. He gave them Moses. And what did he do through Moses? He gave them two sets of laws. And, and it's oversimplifying to say there's two sets of laws. 
But for the, for the purposes of what I'm talking about, just, just work with me. There are the laws that are fundamentally right and wrong, right? He gave them a moral law, such as the Ten Commandments, that are always right, always, no matter what, always right, don't the Ten Commandments. And he gave them another set of laws that define them as a people. Okay? So when we say thou shalt not murder, that's a universal law that God gave them. But, but it applies to all people all the time. And then he gave them a separate set of laws. For instance, he told them, you shall not intermarry with the Canaanites, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. This is an interesting thing. Why would he do that? Is God really worried about racial purity? Is that what's going on here? No. The verse tells you why. Because they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. He is worried about the purity of the devotion of the people of Israel to God. And he doesn't want a distraction from that. This is not about race at all. It is about the purity of their devotion to God. And so... So it's a, it's a separation, though. It sets them apart. They're not allowed to intermarry because of that. And, and so we also see in Leviticus other, many, many other laws. But, but some of the high-profile ones that we know and think of easily, we think of like the food laws, the kosher laws, about what is acceptable for a Jew to eat and not acceptable. Um, and we talked a couple weeks ago about Peter's vision, right? So when, when God spoke to Peter in his vision and said, don't, do not call unclean what I have declared clean. So we see that is clearly not a universal law, but it was a, certainly a law for the nation of Israel. For what purpose? To set them apart. It set them apart. If they're not allowed to eat what the Gentiles eat, then they can't eat with the Gentiles. If they can't eat with the Gentiles, they're not going to get to know the Gentiles. If they don't get to know them, they're not going to marry them and corrupt and corrupt their devotion to God. So God set them apart. He created these barriers and these boundaries in their culture. They were given mandatory holy days. And, and there's so much rich layers to the holy days that he gave them. But, but one of the other thing they did is this builds a culture. And a culture is a boundary. And so he, he set them apart with the culture. But he also taught them through these holy days. And we know through the rituals and through the meanings of, of the holy days... We can understand and we learn things about God's character and God's plan. They were given a detailed system of worship and sacrifice. Similar to the holy days, this teaches about God's plan and his character, about the coming Messiah, and it, and it separates from the nations around. And what was the penalty for, for failing to live up to these laws? It was to be cast out of the nation. To be cut off is the term they use. To, to be cut off. So it was a serious, serious business. So the result, God's plan, all these laws, all these commands from God built a culture, built a nation that was designed to de both describe and, pr and produce the Messiah that was to come. The promised Messiah. The Lamb of God. Described by the Passover. We might, we might say that even though Israel didn't perfectly follow all the commands, because we know they didn't, God was still able to use Israel for this purpose. But I think even stronger we could say that because they didn't fully obey, that God's purpose was even more clearly shown. Because, because he showed both that, that he had a, a plan and a purpose that he could complete, 
And that he could complete it and would complete it as a redemption of the sins and the unfaithfulness of Israel. Which was the whole, the whole plan. To, to redeem an unfaithful people of humankind. So the focus for this first part is to prepare for what God will do. He's, he's explaining this is what's going to happen. He does, it in, he does it in the story. He does it in the lives of real people. And he, he builds this nation up to show what he's going to do. Um, as an illustration, I've been, I've been listening as I commute to work to a, uh, to a book. It's, it's a pretty famous book. It's called Les Miserables. And it, it happens to be really, really long. It's like 60 hours of audio. Um, it would probably be tough for me to, to gather up the attention span to actually sit down and read it. But I can listen to it on my commute and enjoy it. But I was, I was telling Rachel the other day, the author spends a lot of time introducing characters and laying down backstory. And, the, and at times it seems a little excessive because you're, you're listening to the story about this you know, former prisoner that's trying to be reformed and he's got this little girl he's trying to take care of. And all of a sudden you find yourself in the fifth hour of a narrative on the Battle of Waterloo and you're kind of like, what? Okay. So... But, but there's a reason behind, behind his plan here, why he does this. He's laying down all this groundwork so that when you get to the plot points and when the characters behave in a certain way, it's, it's more meaningful to you. Because now you understand what the character's about. You understand where they've come from, what matters to them, and, what they, and when they do something, you think, oh, yeah, because that goes back to that. And that's, that's what God did, sort of, with Israel. He built this giant backstory so that, so that when the Messiah came, he could have just sent the Messiah and said, all right, Jesus died, and that paid for everything. Are we good? He paid for everything. And we would say, oh, okay, thank you. But what he did instead is he laid down an entire backstory to explain the richness of the meaning of what was going to happen the depth of the love that was required, the, the vastness of the forgiveness for all the, the crime and the sin. And so that when he actually did it, it means a lot more. It's a lot deeper to us because he's laid this down. Um, it demonstrates his glory, which is what he's about. So we move, we move on. I want to just kind of close this with a principle. God prepared Israel to produce the Messiah. He prepared Israel for the coming of the Messiah, but he also prepares us in certain ways. He prepares us for his purpose. He has a purpose for everything he does. It's, it is not random that you and I are here today. It's not random that you have had the experiences that you've had. Amen. God, God directs the events of our lives. He's preparing you for a purpose. Are you listening to him? Are you seeking what that purpose is? And are you, are you ready to respond and act when it's clear what it is? How does God want to put you in this? What has he brought you through? So when, when Jesus came, now 2,000 years after Abraham was called, and we look back and we think, wow, it's 2018 now, and, and it's been a long time since Jesus was here. That's how long it had been. When Jesus was, was walking the earth with his disciples, they could look back and say, wow, 2,000 years ago, Abraham, that's a long time. So it's, it's kind of symmetrical. It's kind of neat. 
about a thousand years before Jesus was David, the, another key figure in their history. So we see these promises that were made to Abraham, and, and we see that Jesus came to fulfill, okay? And I want to just kind of hit, quickly hit, when Jesus came, what did he do? And, and why did it change things? Well, he, he came and he fulfilled God's promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham that all people would be blessed through him. Critical. All people. Remember, Abraham wasn't Jewish. Right? He was the grandfather of the Jews. But he wasn't Jewish. He was a Chaldean. He fulfilled God's promise through Moses that another prophet would come and speak to the people. Remember, Moses said another prophet will come. And you need to listen to what he says. And when, and when John came, John the Baptist came, people were saying, are you the prophet of Moses? He said, no, but I know who he is. Right? So he fulfilled that. He was the prophet of Moses. He fulfilled God's promise to David that an eternal king would come from his line. He fulfilled God's promise through Isaiah that an innocent and suffering servant would willingly pay for the crimes of others and bring redemption to the people. So, with these fulfillments of promises, 2,000 years in the making, there had to be a shift. And so we shift from preparation to declaration. From God saying, I will do, to God saying, I have done. And so, in the time of preparation, Israel as a nation was set apart. Individual Hebrews could go about their lives, for the most part, in, the, in that small context of that culture. And because they were forbidden to have contact with other people, so... They, for the most part, they would, uh, they would stay to themselves. But Jesus, when he came, he changed the approach. And he changed it by step. In Matthew, we see this first uh, sort of small mission trip. And Jesus sent his disciples out to proclaim the coming of the kingdom to the lost sheep of Israel. And it's interesting because at first he tells them, don't go to the Gentiles. It's not time yet. But go to the lost people of Israel. Do that first. Okay? So he sent them out and they, and they went out. Then we see later in John, we see as he's praying the high priestly prayer, the night before he is crucified, what does he say? Well, he says, he prays to the Father that his disciples would be in the world, but not of it. So not completely taken out. I do not, he said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus is saying, I came down. I was sent to the earth for this mission. and I fulfilled it. Now I am in turn sending my disciples to complete this mission on the earth. After a time of preparation and waiting... Jesus came and changed everything. And I ask, has he changed you? Because he can and he will. Has he changed you? He changed the game of all of history. It's 2018 today. Why? Because Jesus came 2018 years ago. That's why. There is no more significant figure in history. He changed everything. And he can change you. So moving on to the, this third part, this, this mission idea, which is really our focus. We want to we recognize. We see in Acts, thir in Acts 13, the church has been growing primarily in the community of the Jews so far at this point in the story. 
And uh, last week we saw God's purpose for Saul. And uh, he explicitly said, I'm going to send this guy to the Gentiles and I'm going to show him what it means to suffer for me. So we see Paul's going to have these two, these two things to do. But yet in, in this chapter we see now the Holy Spirit has taken this first step of sending out Barnabas and Saul on their first real complete mission trip as we would understand it today. They go on a mission trip. We see them give special privilege even now as they first go. They, their, their first contact is always with the Jews. They go to the synagogue and, they, and they're respectful and they start talking. And In the first, the first case, they're invited to speak. And so they start speaking and they start preaching. It doesn't take them long to get to the gospel, the tough part. But, they, but they're invited and they preach. And it actually, we see, we see some uh, different, different responses to what they do. Uh, we see, uh, as they go to Cyprus, we see some resistance. We see that magician that tries to, uh, tries to prevent the proconsul from, from hearing and, and taking them seriously. But they dealt with him. The Holy Spirit blinded that man and he was put aside. The proconsul believed. There, we saw acceptance and rejection over and over. And they're always mixed together. Because just like Jesus says, the parable of the soils, we see this. There's always some acceptance and there's always some rejection. And the Jews in, the, in Antioch, they were first eager to hear, oh, this is new stuff and it's good. But then when they saw that, the, that Paul and, and Barnabas were preaching to Gentiles too, they said, whoa, whoa, that's, just, that's for us. And, they get, and it's, the scripture tells us they were jealous and they tried to shut them down. But the whole town came out to hear. Paul and Barnabas left. At Iconium, many Jews and Greeks believed. But some tried to stone them. At Lystra, they didn't just try. They really did stone him. And then they left him for dead. And what happened? The very next day, he was back. He went, he went to the next city to go preach. And then he returned to Lystra later. Because the Spirit protected him. God had a plan for him. We see resistance, then we see acceptance and rejection. And the other thing that we see here is, is confusion. When missionaries come and spread the gospel, sometimes there's confusion because of the existing culture that's in a place. Remember, these Gentiles have been left up to themselves. At Lystra, Paul, Paul healed a man, which had happened a lot in Jerusalem. There had been a lot of healings. But what happened at Lystra is that when the healing happened, they said, Oh, well, we have gods among us. And I think it must be Zeus and Hermes. And so they went to go get the sacrifices to sacrifice to Zeus and Hermes. And, and Paul was mortified. It says he tore his clothes. No, no, no. No, we're just men. He, he explained, men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This is Paul. Paul preaching to these Gentiles who have no foundation in the, in the history of the Jews. Right? So he's meeting them where they are. Just like he does in Romans, and we can see Echo's thoughts, or Paul's thoughts echoed in Romans, about there's no excuse. It doesn't matter if you've been taught the Jewish history. You can look at creation and see that there is a, a wise and good creator God who has done this thing. You can see it. 
Men are without excuse, Paul says in Romans. Here, he tells them and emphasizes, yes, God has allowed you to kind of go your own way for a while. But even still, he didn't leave himself without witness. He did you good. He gave you rain and fruitful seasons. And he gave you food and gladness. And so he's, he's telling the Gentiles, it's time to come. It's time to acknowledge who he is and what he's done for you. Now's the time. We can see more of Paul's thinking on this in Romans. Because what, is, what does Jesus tell us in John? We know, we all know John 3.16, right? And we need to remember that the voice speaking in John 3.16 is Jesus himself. It's not the, the sort of a narrator voice. It is Jesus speaking. And what does he say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. What's the condition? Belief. Belief. That's what, that's what Jesus says. And what does Paul say in Romans 10? How then will they call on, him, call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of, who, of whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So this is from Romans, but this is Paul, that first missionary, explaining why. Why are there missionaries? Because somebody's got to go preach so that someone can believe. And, they, and if someone can believe, then they can come to faith and they can, they can live with God forever. And so that is, that is the, the kernel of what we're talking about here. And Paul's explaining this is why there are missionaries. God uses means. He uses people. And they have a purpose, this missionary purpose. So as we conclude, uh, um, musicians, you can uh, make your way up. That's, that would be good. I want to say a few words. We, we've seen that God spent 2,000 years, 2,000 years preparing the nation of Israel for the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ. We understand that in His purposes, He also prepares us. And I'm asking you, how has He prepared you? What has led you to this time in this place. We've seen that God acts after preparation. He sent His Son, Jesus, to fulfill all His promises. To save the world from its sin and save individual people, you and me, from our sins. Do you recognize His action? Do you praise Him for it? We were talking in one of the other night and we said, we said the ABCs, right? Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and confess that He is Lord. That's, that is what we do. That's from Romans. That's straight from the Scripture. We understand that that is how we're saved.